0: I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 16. We're going to begin this morning with verse 19. And uh, at first blush, this may seem like a strange Father's Day message. I'm always in a quandary uh, whether to uh, stop and highlight the, the day of emphasis or whether to just keep going through the Scriptures and um, you know trust that uh, they, they will apply. Actually, I think they do apply. And I think you'll find that as uh, we go along. It's a story of rich man and Lazarus. And uh, in this whole chapter, Jesus has been uh, contrasting uh, really um, how, uh, how to manage wealth. And in this particular story, it's not so much a story about wealth as it is about the attitudes that reflect one's use of it. Um, there are wealthy people who are humble before the Lord and manage their resources well. And then there are people who are enamored uh, with their wealth and basically uh, squander it on themselves. And uh, the message uh, here is about such a man as that. But really, as we get into it, we find that what Jesus is really illustrating is uh, what happens after this life, life after death, and what goes on uh, in life beyond. The other thing that's interesting about this story is that it has been debated by the church for 2,000 years whether this was a parable or whether this was a literal event. Was this some uh, literal uh, historical event about which Jesus uh, had supernatural understanding? Or is this a parable? And uh, while no one has ever satisfactorily solved that question, uh, one of the things that they have uh, determined, at least conservative scholarship as they look at it, is uh, if this is a, a story, like a composite, here's, here's what happens, um, it's not a typical parable in that it's not just focusing on one point, But the unfolding of this story gives us a glimpse into the afterlife that is authoritative. In other words, as we study this uh, story that Jesus gives to us, it gives us authoritative information about what happens after death and what happens to those who die in faith and to those who die in their sin without faith. And so uh, without further ado, let's look at it and uh, let you follow along as I read. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. So those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus says there's two men. One is uh, very, very wealthy. There are indications in the story that suggest this. For example, the word gate that is used that Lazarus was, uh, was brought and laid beside... It is a term that is reserved for like the gate to a city or the gate to a palace. Uh, it's an ornate, large gate uh, that is reserved for mansions and palaces and cities. So this man lives in an incredibly fine home behind a, a, a gated wall and And he's able to go in there and just uh, focus on himself and shut all the rest of the world out. And it says he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Uh, Now, in those days, uh, some of you I see are wearing purple this morning. Uh, Well, your purple may have come from somewhere else. But in those days, the only way you could get purple dye was from the uh, exoskeleton of snails. And they would... Uh, you, do you want to know all this? <laughs> no, you, you probably don't. I'll, just, I'll spare you. Just take my word for it. It comes from snails. Okay? And snails are rare. And so, uh, you know, you have to gather up enough snails uh, to get enough dye to dye a garment. And so the only people that wore purple were people that had money because to have a purple garment, well, that was kings and... And uh, magistrates and uh, you know emperors they wore purple, but but not the common person. And so uh, this guy is dressed in purple, and so it's it's like saying to the world, you know, I'm wearing the latest designer clothes from Paris. You know, I've got the best of the best on. And he was broadcasting his his wealth and his prosperity. Um, he was also wearing the finest underwear that you could buy it was fine linen Uh, he had it from head to toe inside to out he was decked in the finest clothes that a person could have and it says that he lived in splendor every day i mean this guy was living high on the hog he had everything he could want indoor theater big screen tv you know uh pool jacuzzi a whole nine yards he had it all and uh, he went behind his gate he closed the door and he lived for his own pleasure every single day now there was at his gate this other fellow by the name of lazarus not the one that jesus raised from the dead particularly but there was this fellow lazarus and Lazarus was not able to work because uh he was incapacitated in some way and he also had some kind of illness that caused uh sores all over his body uh, it was not leprosy if it had been leprosy he wouldn't have been there to begin with he would have been outcast in the out- outer part of the city somewhere but but he was there and he was uh, obviously not able to fend for himself. He was carried and placed there. He couldn't get there on his own. And uh, dogs were not the little uh, pet pooches that we have these days. They were, they were uh, you know, mongrel dogs that roamed the cities. And he wasn't even able to shoo them away. Uh, and so they would come and lick his swords. This is a picture, uh, you know, of a person in dire, dire straits. And uh, because he's not, a, un, he's not able to work, they didn't have any uh, social services uh, in those days that you could you know, just appeal and uh, get, get some kind of income to take care of you. You had to uh, rely on the good graces of people around you. And so he would uh, have uh, someone come and, and deposit him by the gate to this rich man's palace in hopes that perhaps some of the crumbs that fell from his table, metaphorically speaking, that he could get the garbage that was left over after the meal and subsist. And Jesus paints a picture that this this wealthy guy just kind of walked by him every day and paid him absolutely no mind, in and out, all day long, could care less about this man's condition. Now let me tell you what this story is not about. Because it's important that we get this distinction in our mind. This is not a story about rich people that go to hell and poor people that go to heaven. This is not about that. Your wealth and your status in life has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. What it is a story about is values. It's a story about values that arise from our core beliefs. The scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And and the scripture also says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things are new. Old things have passed away, and everything has become new. Uh, We bear the image and character of God as we're born again into his family. And so how we treat people and how we respond to their need and a heart of compassion reflects an inner value system. It reflects character and it, the kind of person that we have become as a result of actually fearing God. Uh, and so uh, this is not about, you know, Uh, Riches land you in hell when poverty gets you to heaven. It's, It's about a man who had great potential in his resources, but lived only for himself, to the point that he completely ignored the plight of a desperate man at his doorstep. It reveals his heart. And it reveals something about his relationship with God. Namely, it was non-existent. And about a poor man who was a son of Abraham, child of Abraham, who was uh, longing to just get through life the best he could, but whose hope ultimately lay elsewhere. And uh, so... As Jesus unfolds this story he says it came about that Lazarus died and when he died the angels carried him away to Abraham's bosom and then after a bit the rich man also died and he was buried uh, some see and hear the implication that Lazarus was probably thrown outside the city on the garbage heap and just allowed his body to rot Because if they weren't going to feed him in life, who's going to care for him in death? But the rich man had a nice funeral and, you know, a good (laughs) send-off. And now the curtain is drawn back, and we are shown a picture of where they have landed after their death. One thing immediately comes to mind they have not ceased to exist. The grave is not the end. They're both existing. I chose the word existing for the outline carefully because I can't say that the rich man was living. He wasn't living. He was existing. Lazarus was living. Uh, And according to the scriptures, uh, death is not a matter of clinical death when this body ceases to function. The real essence of death is separation from God. The rich man was existing, but he was existing separated from God. The poor man, Lazarus, was living in the bosom of Abraham, being comforted by him. I'm very tempted to go off on a rabbit trail and talk about a lot of uh, theological concepts here and I'm going to resist because it took me too long the first hour uh, so I won't, uh, I won't chase those down but let's just, let's just for the sake of argument say that this is heaven and let me tell you and then you can come ask me questions if you have them later that uh, before the cross when a person died they went to the bosom of Abraham which was the father of the faithful he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and so he He represents all the faithful, and he was the safe harbor for all believers after death. After the atonement, Jesus Christ went and proclaimed liberty to the captives, announced the atonement had been accomplished, uh, his blood had truly removed their sin, and ushered them into the presence of God, so that Paul now tells us that to be absent from the body is immediately to be in the presence of Jesus Christ so now since the cross we uh, who are uh, believers uh, go into the presence of God immediately upon our death and we live there until the end of time as we know it when the ultimate and final judgment is reckoned and uh, the new heaven and the new earth are ushered in and we spend eternity in God uh, with God uh, in Christ apart uh, you know from in our resurrected bodies. Uh, So, that's the first thing. Both of these guys are conscious, and they're existing, and they're somewhere in the universe, carrying on. We also learn from this story that the rich man as uh, he looks across and sees Lazarus, that he is wanting Abraham to allow Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and come touch his tongue because he says, I am in torment in this flame. Now, this is not a very popular subject today. In fact, it's so unpopular that even the church is starting to get confused and waffle on it. Um, We have been, uh, we have had pluralism and equality preached to us so much that everybody's ideas are valuable and everybody counts and ultimately everybody goes to a happy place when they die that it it is almost impossible, you know, to stand and say without being ridiculed, no, there's a place called hell. And people who are not in Jesus Christ go there, and it's not pleasant. In fact, we learn from the story that they're conscious, that they see each other, that the rich man is able to see Lazarus, and he re- recognizes him and has recollection. This is the guy that was at my gate. And now who's begging? Let him dip his finger in water and come touch my tongue. Notice the wording, because I am tormented in the flame. I have copied for you and printed out every verse in the New Testament in which the word Gehenna or hell or Hades is used. And speaking of hell, of all the times that it occurs, and this is not a selection, this is an exhaustive list, of all the times that hell occurs, Jesus is the one talking about it in all but two of them. And when he talks about it, he has things to say about flames and fire and torment and the worm that does not die. And you say, what in the world is that about? And and I think in the context and with the understanding and particularly with this insight into this situation here, the worm that does not die is the conscience and the consciousness. The picture that the Bible paints of hell is a a literal place where people who die in their sins go, they are conscious, they are alert, they are aware, they are suffering immensely, and they are acutely aware of the reality that they're there, but because of choices they made. And there's no way out. Abraham says, Lazarus can never cross the gulf to come to you. And you can never leave that place to come here. The scripture in Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, there is a judgment. There are no second chances. There's no opportunity to somehow pay off your sins and get out. Once you experience clinical death and this body shuts down... You pass into eternity, and your fate and your destiny is sealed forever, and there's no way out. People say, won't there be a time when, when the, the judgment will be up? No, there won't. In fact, when we come to Revelation, and we get to the end of the story, the Scripture says that everyone outside of Christ stands before the judgment of God at the judgment seat. And in the final analysis, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, which burns forever, that was prepared for the devil and his angels. I want to tell you something. God did not make hell for people. He made hell for the devil and his angels who had rebelled. But when people rebel with them and turn their back on God and choose to go their own way, there's nowhere else for them to go. It's the inevitable result of that choice to go away from God and follow Satan. And so they end up in the same place in the lake of fire that burns forever. I want you to think with me just a moment. Have you burned yourself ever? Do you remember what that feels like? If you're close to water, boy, you run for the water the first rule of first aid put the fire out you know you you, you want to take and then it stings and it burns until it heals there's just it's just one of those kinds of pain that just doesn't stop the bible presents hell as a place where there is flame where people burn inside and out forever but they cannot die. And as they endure that incredible suffering and they deal with that horrible pain, they have in their mind a conscious awareness of their circumstances and the fact that they are there because they rejected God. I cannot imagine anything worse. And then to know that there's no way out. I hear people all the time say, well, <clears throat> I may as well go to hell because that's where all my buddies are going to be. You know? <clears throat> we'll, we'll break out a little card game. We'll have some fun. We'll party down there because, hey, that's, that's where all my friends are going to be. What a sad, sad misconception. You're not going to think about your friends. If you even know anybody else is there, it's never going to dawn on you. So great is the personal suffering. Have you ever been seriously ill in a painful way or had a trauma that, that caused excruciating pain did you lay there in your agony thinking about playing games and watching TV and reading books and partying with your buddies I can tell you what you thought about trying to get a pain free breath that's what you thought about because I've been there and I know what that feels like and all you want to do is breathe this is a horrible situation and it's interesting and I and I hope that you don't take this out of context my letter D because I've said hell is filled with intercessors and missionaries don't quote me without quoting the rest of the sermon okay But all of a sudden, the rich man starts to pray, and he becomes evangelistic. It's a fascinating turnabout. All through life, he cared about nothing but himself. Now, all of a sudden, if he can't get any relief, he prays, let Lazarus go back and tell my brothers, I have five brothers, and I do not want them here. You know, I don't know if you did this in this hour, but in the first hour we prayed for the church in South Carolina where the young man came in and killed people and shot up the Bible study group. and You know, and the, the re, that church's reaction to him and sometimes we get all confused with this let me say this before I go back there the, the worst most cruel curse you can ever say to anyone is go to hell that is the worst curse you could ever say to anyone no one who has a clue about the reality of hell would want anyone to go there, however wicked or evil they might be. Now, when I say that, I am quick to tell you that in this case, it is so recently in the news and, and many others like it, I saw the picture of that young man on the internet, dejected, vacant, downcast, He owes a debt to society. And society cannot ignore that kind of behavior. We must respond to it with swift and sure judgment. The scriptures plain about that. The one who bears the sword does not bear it in vain, but is God's minister avenging his righteousness upon the ungodly. There is a debt that is owed society. That must be carried out or there will be anarchy and mayhem and no one will be safe. And God values life to the point that he has put within our authority the power of capital punishment. And incarceration and other things. So so there's no question that the, the debt must be paid. Don't get that confused with praying for someone's salvation. But he can be saved and have a relationship with Jesus Christ while he meets whatever consequences he owes society and those families for their loss. And anyone who is still breathing can be saved. No matter what they've done, no matter how wicked they've been, there is forgiveness and cleansing And restoration in the name of Jesus. You may have to pay for your sin and its social consequences here, and rightly so. But no one who has an inkling about the meaning of hell would want the worst criminal on the planet to spend eternity there. There are those who think that God designed hell as a part of his grand scheme to demonstrate uh, his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. And I will tell you in a heartbeat that anyone who thinks that has no clue what the Bible teaches about the character of God. You can only take God at his word. and He says very plainly, he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any... Should perish that's his heart he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth the fact is not all people will be in fact Jesus is very open about the fact that the majority of people will not be but it does not change the fact that God's heart toward them is that they would be in fact I've quoted Ezekiel thirty-three eleven for you here at the bottom thoughts about the grief that God holds in his heart And he says through Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Hear the heart of God. He wants no one to be lost. Listen to John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The heart of God is that people not go to hell. But the reality is if they refuse His grace and persist in their sin and will not bend the knee, they will go there and they will never leave and they will suffer immeasurable, unrelenting, unimaginable pain for all the rest of eternity with the conscious awareness that they can never leave, and they're there because they've chosen to resist the grace of God. And they will not know their friends, and they will not have parties, and they will never again be at peace, and they will have no relief, and they will suffer Forever until that moment they're taken out of their holding cell of hell and brought before the judgment seat of God and found guilty and cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and will never quench. It's horrible. It's horrible. And the amazing thing is, that as this guy says, send him to my brothers. If someone comes back from the dead, they'll listen. And Abraham says, no, they won't. (laughs) No, they won't. If if they're not paying any attention to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to somebody raising from the dead. We need to understand something very clearly. No amount of logic, no amount of persuasion, no apologetic, no amount of miracles, not even a resurrection from the dead, will convert the unbeliever. You cannot argue, miracleize, or astound anyone into heaven. Frankly, not even the fear of hell does it. It's amazing. People live every day as if God didn't exist. They live every day as if, well, I'm not so bad. Somehow or another, I'll get through. I have more in my good stack than I've got in my bad stack and somehow they think that they're going to skate or they they just don't think at all or they just deny the existence of God or they try to make the, the Bible into a pack of lies or they try to make us into bigots just for telling them the truth Because the amazing thing is, is that the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. It is incredibly hard, and the eyes are blind. How how can you reach someone who is blind and deaf and heartless and and hard-hearted and locked up in their own selves? How can you do that? And the answer is, you must pray for them. Because as we witness on the outside, the Holy Spirit must be witnessing on the inside. He is the one that convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Only the Spirit of God can convince someone that they have sinned against a holy God. Only the Spirit of God can make them aware of their dire need of a Savior. Only the Holy Spirit can awaken their conscience. Only the Holy Spirit can open their eyes. Apologetics may be useful, logical reasoning may be helpful in the process of witnessing and sharing our faith with others, but friends, only the Spirit of God can penetrate the the dulled heart and and the dulled conscience and the thick mind. Only the Spirit of God can get through. What does that tell us? We need to pray for people. We need to pray for them. And we need to pray for opportunities to share with them. You know, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. He wasn't being unkind. He was just simply saying that if a person's not ready to hear the truth, they're just going to turn and trample you underfoot. You have to till the soil. You have to prepare the heart. You have to pray. You can buttonhole people all day long and try to cram the gospel down their throat, and all you're going to do is make them mad. They're not going to appreciate that. But if you start praying for them, and you start praying for God to deal with their heart, and you start praying for their eyes to be open, and you start praying for openings and opportunities to share your faith, then God, working with us and through us, and empowering us, can, from the inside, bear witness to what we're saying on the outside and together. And the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit began to move them toward that decision to trust and follow Jesus Christ. I concluded the message with some sobering thoughts. Today's Father's Day. What on earth does this message have to do with Father's Day? And I want to say to you dads, there's a lot to being a father. And it includes a lot of things, a lot of conversations, a lot of listening, a lot of training, a lot of teaching, ball games, concerts, special events, whatever. You know, investment. But there is no more important legacy to leave than to influence your children to follow Jesus Christ and make that important decision. There's nothing I want more than for my sons and my grandchildren to be in heaven with me. There's nothing I want more. It's the most important legacy I can leave that one day I will see them again and we'll be together forever. There's nothing more important than that. It is the most important thing a father can do. And don't you dare let them make up their own minds which way they're going to go. You pour all of your energy and all of your prayers into lovingly pointing them toward Jesus Christ. He is the only way. There's some things you cannot afford to leave up to someone's own mind. You need to proactively move them toward the Savior. Not forcefully, but gently leading and guiding. Secondly, even a marginal grasp of the reality of hell and eternal damnation will make an intercessor and an evangelist out of the most timid among us. I will tell you very honestly, I am not the world's greatest evangelist. I've told you this before and I've just proved it again. I got on a flight in Tampa and flew all the way to Chicago. I wasn't sitting with my family, I was sitting in an exit row where I had a little leg room. There were two young ladies sitting beside me and I flew all the way to Chicago. And I think the only word I said was, hello. Oh, I think they asked if they could get out at one point to use the restroom, and I said, certainly. Some of you don't think I'm an introvert, but believe me, (laughs) I'm an introvert. I am not a natural, bubbling, effervescent soul who just uh, finds ways to tell people about Jesus and chats them up on every opportunity I It's just not who I am. But I pray and I look for opportunities. And I ask God to make opportunities. And when he puts a door in front of me that's open, I I want to take it. God can give the boldness to take it. I want to take it. you know i i told someone the other day i couldn't i could not bypass the opportunity i said don't don't you dare let me preach your funeral before i know for sure that you're going to spend eternity in heaven don't you let that happen to me don't let it happen to you i don't want that and it led into a conversation friends we have to pray for people and we have to take every opportunity God gives us I don't want to preach funerals and not know and not know where that person is or worse and know where they are and it's not the right place a sober awareness of the reality of hell will make an intercessor and an evangelist out of you it has to and finally every once in a while I have these thoughts and I can't touch this topic without without having this thought and I may be wrong because there's nothing in the scripture that tells me this except I guess just the way I react to things and maybe a sense of awareness of what God is like The Bible says that there will come a day when human history is finished and all the redeemed of the Lord, all those who put their faith and hope in Christ, will stand with him safe at the great white throne judgment. Did you know that you and I will not be on the docket that day? We will not be defendants. We will not have to appear before the great white throne judgment. Because Jesus Christ will already have gone there for us, and he paid the price, and I will never have to face that price. I will not have to appear before the great white throne to be judged. I've already made that decision to follow Jesus. But I will be there with God and with Jesus Christ and all the company of the redeemed on his side of the bar of judgment. And all those from the beginning of the world until the end of the world who never bowed the knee to Christ will appear before him. They will come out of their holding cells. They will stand in front of the judge. The books will be opened. Their sins will be named from day one to the last day they breathe. Their condemnation will be just. Their sentence will be hell. And when it's all done, Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire and banished to the outer recesses of the universe. It is then that the scripture says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Interestingly, not before that. It is then that he removes all sorrow, takes away all grief, wipes away every tear, and we enter into eternal joy with him to celebrate his presence forever but here's what I wonder somehow God will deal with our memories and our hearts in such a way that we will have no grief left maybe there won't even be recollection I don't know But in the lake of fire there will be all those people whom God loves and he knows their names. He knows their names, he knows who they are. All day long he held out his arms. that they might come to the Savior. And they refused. And I wonder if the heart of God will not in some way have a certain grief for all the lost that he knows by name. Because he loves us, and he is not willing that any should perish but that all should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't want to add to that pain. (laughs) I want to join my heart with His and reach out and be an instrument to, to call as many as possible to salvation that they will not spend eternity separated from God. If we have his heart, it is a heart of love for the lost. And no one knows better than God what it means to be lost eternally. Father, this is an awesome word to us. Awesome in the fact that it it, it makes us tremble. It's awe-inspiring. It causes us to wonder with great sobriety. Lord, I pray that you will give us a renewed passion and desire to share from our heart your love with everyone that we know, to pray for them, to to ask for openings in their lives, to, to long for them to know you as much as you do, that they might be saved. Lord Jesus, you had more to say about hell than any other person in the New Testament. You, so filled with tender love and compassion, you had more to say about that awful place of judgment because you don't want anyone to be there. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of compassion Faithful intercession, holy boldness to take every opportunity to share the truth that as many as possible will be saved. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.